Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello, and welcome to Past Imperfect. I'm Alice Thompson. And I'm Rachel Sylvester. We're talking to leading figures about how overcoming the challenges of their early lives shaped the people they've become. We've come to interview Lord Bird, the big issue founder, and then we're in an old thatched cottage near Cambridge, which is slightly echoey, uh, creaky chairs. There's wattle and daub that you can actually see um, through a patch in the paint, which is rather amazing, and the River Cam at the end of the drive. Um, it's a stunning setting, really, and very different from what uh, uh, Lord Bird started out at in Notting Hill. to start talking to you really about lockdown and what it was like um, when the government housed all the rough sleepers in hostels and hotels. You must have been cheering in that, weren't you? Because you've been asking for that for years and it's finally happened. Yes. I mean, not in the way that I would have wanted it, because what I've always said is that leaving people on the streets to die younger than us, to suffer uh, all sorts of mental health problems... Uh, and physical health problems and get into drink and drugs because that's how you cope when you're on the streets. I think that's a human rights abuse. Uh, And I think I had been saying well before the big issue, from the days when I was ex-homeless as a young man and as a teenager, and I always said, you know, there is no earthly way that you can call this a civilization if you don't look after the the most naked the most broken the most wretched um and uh, so i was going on and you had loads of people very well-intended liberal-minded people say people should be allowed to sleep on the streets if they want to i said oh really have you ever tried it do you know what it does to you do you know that three nights on the streets will begin to change your psychological profile. Three nights, when you hit the streets, the first thing that disappears is the truth. So when you're out on the streets and you're destitute, you exaggerate your destitution. Oh, I haven't eaten for a week. Oh, my God. And all that stuff. I mean, and, of course, your mum dies every day. Oh, yeah, I lost my mum. Lost my mum. Yes, yes. Or another occasion. Oh, my mum's in an iron lung. Oh, yes. Broke me in half. So that's how I'm on the streets. Not the fact that you ran away because you'd stolen something, or what, which, which was my situation. So you had this kind of uh, situation around street homelessness that I, when the government put their arms round the most disenfranchised people, these internal refugees in the United Kingdom, I, I said, this is wonderful, as long as we don't put them back on the streets. And Does, they, do you worry that that's going to happen, that there'll be more homelessness as a result of the economic impact of the pandemic? Well, one of the reasons why we, uh, about three months ago, 
responded to the district council's link, which is a kind of part of the uh, local government association. They issued a report to say that about half a million families were going to fall into homelessness. And we immediately put together an alliance to prevent that from happening. So therefore campaigning that there should not be any evictions based on COVID poverty, COVID-19 poverty, that there should be job creation programs, that the government should put an enormous amount of money in getting people jobs and training them who were not in a situation where they could keep their jobs. And that's, we've we built this alliance, it's called RORA, which is Ride Out Recession Alliance. And it's putting big companies together who are going to help us create jobs, people like BT, Deloitte, um, Unilever, uh, people like Generation Rent and, you know, some of the uh, um, uh, advocacy groups, some charities like Church Shelter. So we're putting this together and its purpose is so weird because no one's ever done this. It's a, it is an alliance to help the government deliver on its promise of not allowing people to slip into COVID-19 poverty. to take you back to your childhood and we've come to see you in Cambridge in a beautiful thatched cottage but it's very different to where you grew up can you describe the house where you lived in Notting Hill when you were a child yes I can not only describe it I could describe the history of what was there a hundred years before I was um, largely because I've been fascinated by how you could have such a slum that was a Thropney bus ride from the Houses of Parliament and Buckingham Palace, why you could, why I was born a seven-minute walk from where Queen Victoria, Princess Victoria was born. And that is one of the contradictions of, of modern life. You've got these knots of plenty surrounded by these shadows of poverty and need. And uh, where, So where I was born was part of the Westbourne Estate, which is uh, part of the Paddington part of Notting Hill which is now the borough of Westminster. And it was a house that was built for the, what they call the carriage classes. So you had these big houses, big brilliant houses, you know, uh, with a basement um, and all the way up to the eaves where the servants were to live. And it would be for one family, one bourgeois family. And that family would have people running around scurrying and all that. And they built these speculatively, very much like they built Belgravia and they built um, uh, Pimlico and other places like that. So they, so they built it speculatively. What happened was nobody moved in. They built it in the 1860s. So by the 1890s, it had gone bankrupt and it would been stuffed full of poor people. So it became a slum. The landlords did not invest in it, so there was rain, the roof was leaking, the windows were broken. They wouldn't come anywhere near it. Also, the rents were very low, so that nobody would want to invest in it. And a lot of this land, by the way, was owned by the Church of England. It had been left by uh, people, to, you know, as, as a, an endowment at death. Um, so that it was an absolutely appalling place to live and to grow up. 
It was rats, it was mice, it was lice, it was fleas. There was one toilet for dozens of people. If you wanted to do a number two, you had to book a couple of days ahead. That's how I <laughs> describe it. <laughs> and it was and it was absolutely appalling. I loved it. I was oh, born why? into it. I absolutely loved it. The reason I loved it was because it was a community. There was my uncles around the corner. There was my grandmother around the corner. There was uh, all the people in the street were looking out for each other. All right, there was a lot of drink, drunkenness. There was a lot of domestic violence. Mothers, women were beaten regularly at the weekend. Uh, that it's what it's what the Marxists call the D-class, the lumpen proletariat. But they were all hardworking. They all got up and went out in their lorries at five in the morning, or they got on their bikes and they went to the transport or all the other jobs. So it was a hard-working place where on a Friday and a Saturday night, especially a Saturday night, everybody get, got completely rat-assed, as the expression is. To me, it was heaven. And what did and your parents do? My mum had met my dad. She was Irish. She came over in 1939 and she came over uh, to get a job at the London Hospital as a, as a nurse because they were looking for them in Ireland. And, of course, when they arrived, they offered her a cleaner's job because she had an Irish accent, a thick Irish accent. And, obviously, she was a country girl. So they said, right, cleaner. So she said, sod that. So she went and moved in with her sister who'd come in the year before and lived in Notting Hill. Uh, and she moved in with her, got a job in a pub. And my dad, at the time, was a, a labourer in, um, in a distillery, a gin distillery, which was probably not a good idea for him because he was a very heavy drinker. Um, so they met in the pub and they fell in love and then they had six children but, you know, starting from 1943, my dad was, didn't go to the war, largely because he had an injury as a child and he, people couldn't understand him. You'd have to translate, because he spoke in a very good And, you know, if you couldn't go in, if you went in a shop with him, he'd, um, he, he'd, if he asked for something, I'd have to say, my dad wants, you know. <laughs> so he never went shopping or anything like that. So he was not, he wouldn't have made a very good soldier. Um, so they were, well, they were from the working classes. And my mother really was from the peasantry because she came from the country. And uh, she'd have loved this house because it was a bit like the house she was born into. This house is absolutely beautiful, but it's, you, it, you have to, work on it because it, it was a slum when we moved in it was a uh, and and in a way coming back here and seeing all the beetles and all the you know the stone beetles and all that, it's a bit like coming back to Notting Hill uh, and we've obviously transformed it over the last five or six years. Is that the longest you've lived in one place because I think you've lived in 100, 120 different homes haven't yes. you? Yeah, I'm here largely because of my children, because I'm, in spite of appearances, I'm a very young father. My children have had to had settle, you know, so we stayed here. I can't think of anywhere I stayed longer, never. Um, I hadn't really thought about that. Uh, but I'm here largely because I'm now 74 and I've got to kind of put in some roots. But I am, I've never, I've never really been a great one for home. <laughs> and is that because of your childhood? I mean, is it because you're just used to constantly being on the move? I think also I have got, because we were always challenged, 
you know, at five, we, we got thrown out for not paying the rent. Then we were in a void in my grandmother's uh, uh, cottage. She had a little slum cottage around the corner, uh, nicely called Burlington Muse. <laughs> um, and we were there a year, and then we were in another a decayed, a condemned house, part condemned house, which was, we were there about... Uh, six months um, and didn't pay the rent there so the Catholic Church because we were Irish Catholics took us into an orphanage Did you ever go hungry? Oh yeah, all the time My parents weren't particularly good at harvesting and husbanding their their slim resources so my father would spend half his wages in the pub on a Saturday night were you very envious of that? I mean, did you know that you didn't have any money at your family? Was no, I mean, I love, I love my family, in spite of my dad's violence and my mother's, uh, you know, if you put a, ha- a pound in her pocket, it would burn a hole in the pocket. She had to get it out. And she was very generous on a Friday because he got paid on a Thursday night. But come Sunday, it was getting a bit thin. And then Monday, and then, of course, uh, the wonderful thing that really helped us on a Tuesday was called the family allowance which was two shillings for every child. And by that time, I think there was, we got about eight shillings because there was four of us. Um, that was brilliant, but it, most of it went on cigarettes and a, you know, a couple of loaves of white bread and margarine. So we weren't eating well. Um, my mother was a heavy smoker. And in fact, she said that I was the most difficult child to be born because she, it normally took 10 woodbines to have a child. <laughs> She'd had two before, but I took 20. <laughs> she said, oh, Johnny, she said, you're a hard birth you were. <laughs> and was your father very violent to you or to your mother? He was, it was my mother, but me, but also it was that the violence with me really started from when we came out of the orphanage. And then at the age of 10, I started getting in trouble with the police and teachers. Teachers loathed me and I loathed them. So I would, they would always hit me, so I would hit them. And then I would be hit by policemen, so I'd hit them or bite them and all that. And then my dad was, my dad was a hard-working Protestant. Uh, he, no, he loved work. He may have had some problems, but he was a hard-working man who had been trained to live within his means. And he met this lovely Irish woman who, you know, um, wasn't very good at looking after the money. Uh, and so what you really had was uh, a man who loathed me the more I got in trouble with the police, because he never got in trouble with the police. He was an honest, hard-working, poor person from Notting Hill, and his family had been there for generations. easier in some ways being in the orphanage because there was a sense of sort of security or routine or was it dreadful it was dreadful i hated it because well first of all we had underwear which was an innovation <laughs> uh, that was what do you do with this you put it on your head or whatever <laughs> sorry um, so we had an underwear and we had baths which was brilliant i mean never had a bath and it was seven years of age and then we had regular meals we had breakfast we had lunch, we had an evening meal then. Uh, and uh, you had a bed with sheets. That was an innovation. And blankets, because we used to sleep in a, on a mattress with piles of old clothes, you know, 
old overcoats. So you'd go around and you'd pick up a load of old rags from the rag shop and we'd sleep in that. So we, we lived a very... In fact, I did describe it as as a world of almost 19th century world. People have said to me, I lived a Dickensian life, mm. childhood. And I say, I don't use that term because that you know makes it sound grand I said no we lived a very very impoverished life but it was also the impoverishment of the spirit because my mum was totally dejected Uh, she'd made a wrong move Um, my dad was weighed down by these increasing mouths to feed and uh, the chemistry was wrong and they had no education worth speaking of they had no they were the poor and everybody else they knew was poor. And it was it was bad news. Uh, and, you know, with poverty, as Brendan Behan says, um, poverty makes pornographers of us all. Meaning, of course, that, you know, you lose all your, you know, you have to scuff around, you have to do a bit of borrowing, a bit of, that you'll never pay back. You have to kind of make ends meet. The truth goes out the window, as I said earlier. Did you have a sense of being abandoned when you uh, went to the orphanage? Was there much love there, or was it...? Well, I, I was the only one that suffered. I had an 18-month-old brother who was in the uh, nursery, and he was indulged. It was lovely going over there looking at him. And the nurses looked at him, looked after him, and he had his own little cot and all that. Uh, my two older brothers, because there was four of us in the orphanage, the, my two older brothers... Uh, they were a part of the system because they were two, three years older than me and the nuns turned them into little workers so they had jobs to do all the time and they loved it because they got spoilt because they were contributing. I was the seven-year-old. I was in, into Regnum in this kind of not 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 very young and not, not old enough. So I was in this kind of useless period and, and I sunk and I became very antisocial I did all sorts of horrible things. I ran away. I took, went to the orphanage, uh, to the convent, and took my brother and ran away. And this was in North London, which was in a place called Mill Hill, which had still lots of farmland. So we ran away and stayed in a in a barn for about four hours until we got hungry and we went back and got beaten. I got beaten. My little brother didn't. So there was a lot of that I loved my mother more than anybody and I wanted to be back with my mother and um, but my older brothers would all would say shut your mouth don't have a go you've got to stop being awkward because the nuns would say your, your, your younger brother's a real pain I will sort him out so there was no comradely there was no solidarity and I felt I think this is why when I came out I was full of an incredible amount of loathing for everybody, except for Jesus. Jesus was my geezer, and he was there for me, but everybody else was an absolute... Teachers, everybody. I even loathed my parents when I came out, because they, as you say, abandoned me, yeah. Yes, did your mother come and see you at all when you were in the orphanage? She did, but she didn't like coming, because because I would all say, I want to come back with you, and I'd stick on to her. And my brothers would then pull me off and say, yeah. So my brothers accepted it, but I didn't. And my dad never came. You know, it was a a terrible time. What do you think it taught you? I think it taught me endurance. It taught me... um, It also taught me to be rather vicious and nasty. Uh, And that was a side of me that that I've struggled all my life with, 
which is, you know, kind of road rage and stuff like that. So it got me all kind of, oh. But it did teach me how to kind of never see whatever happens as the end. So I'm, I'm very good in crises. Uh, I'm probably better in crisis than I am other, any other time. So I've probably made a number of crises for myself over the years just to um, just so that I could get out of them. And how old were you when you first went out to work? Well, I, from the age of five, um, I was adding to the coffers because I would go down to Portobello Road, which was a five-minute walk, and I would um, get... Uh, Orange boxes. I would plead because Portobello Road was virtually all, you know, fruit and veg, and then at the weekend it was antiques and all the barrow boys. And I'd go up and say, "Hello, Governor, can I have one of those orange boxes?" No, I gave you two yesterday. Oh, go on, Governor, go on. My mum's my mum's in an iron lung. Yeah, you said yesterday she was dead. Oh well, uh, she's got a bit better now. <laughs> so uh, I use my charm, and I, I'm an incredibly charming person. I'm very, very good at begging. I'm very good at getting money out of people, because I my mother taught me to be, you know, a little, you know, out there getting money so she can have some cigarettes. So I was really working. I loved it. I loved so it. So what did you do with the orange boxes? Well, you'd, you'd drag the, you'd tie a bit of string on them and you'd go around and knock on the doors and there were these old ladies all dressed in black. They'd all be widows from, from the First World War. You know, people who, the husband didn't come back. They would love it because you brought them a bit of wood, you would break it up for them uh, into little bits and they'd use it as kindling to start their coal fires. And they loved it. And, and they'd give you cups of tea and they'd give you jam sandwiches. So I, that was wonderful. I love that. It was trading. I, I thought, this was for me. Because I, uh, I saw the value of wood. Uh, I've always been fascinated by wood. And, you know, I had a lot of... That's why I like living in a place with loads of trees. But I'm not going to chop, chop them down. But did you get any education at all? Did you I, ever go to school? Well, we got a lot of Catholic education. I say that when I left school at 15, I knew the sandal size of Jesus. <laughs> but I didn't know anything which was really of use in the world. My reading was full of holes. It was like a, a Swiss cheese. Uh, you know, dyslexia or dyslexia is one of those kind of conditions, and it varies how deep you've got it where you can look at words and you can make, you can do things, you could read a magazine, but you might not get the true meaning. So I was like that. So I left school where nobody had said, look, you know, you need to re-learn to read properly. Mm. And it was only when I got to a uh, boys' prison at the age of 16 uh, where I ended up because I'd run away from my reformatory and with another guy, we'd nicked a car and smashed it up at 102 miles an hour. Mm. A sports car, a very nice one, actually. A uh, little Austin Lily Sprite, I recommend it. Uh, anyway, so uh, there I was given a book by a screw, I mean a prison officer, and uh, he knew I didn't really want a book because what, what would I want to sit in a cell pondering over Baroness Ortsy's The Scarlet Pimpernel without making, with understanding every third word? So he said, underline all the words you didn't understand. So I underlined them with a pencil. It was the first time I could admit to anybody 
that I really couldn't read. I was out walking around carrying books, writing poetry. What is my definition of poetry? Poetry is where you put the words in the wrong way. So I used to write really crap poems um, that looked as though I was, you know, quite educated. So I was simulating education. But this guy would, uh, when he arrived back um, on duty a few, would look at the words that I'd underlined. And he said, these are all the silly little words, the where, therefore, the am, and all that stuff. And of course, he realised that those were words that told you what was going on in the sentence. And by the end of the, the, by the time I went back to court and then got transferred back to my reformatory, I could read. And I had this, you know, a blitzkrieg of education in the space of a month or two. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So how did you get into crime? Was it just about the money or was it also a sense of needing a, a family in the gangs and the anti-authority? In a sense, it was an act of rebellion as much as trying to get money. What people also don't understand is that within the working class of that particular time, there were kind of subsections. So if you went into school, oh, and I, I went back to school when I was nine or ten from the orphanage, and... What it was, was that they knew you'd come out of an orphanage. So there was this kind of, you know, you were like the kind of uh, work, workhouse boy. And also I was very rough. I, I had no, you know, I was rough and aggressive and, you know, people, I found it very difficult to communicate and the teachers didn't like me. So that made me more rough and aggressive. And I was a real, real troublesome sort of bloke. And there was nobody in the class who wanted to associate with me except for two boys who were, uh, one of them was a copper's son <laughs> and the other was, his dad was a driver who never came home. And, uh, and they were a bit like me, but they were a bit up the, but what they found about me was the fact that I would probably make a good thief. So we became a little gang. And our first bit of thieving was um, a priest had just died recently just died his name was father digby best i always remember him and he was buried in the churchyard next to where our school was 
and the, the, all, the, all the class was collecting money for his flowers, you know, because they were going to be, um, you know, the first anniversary or something. So all these flowers. So we found out where it was. So we were taking a bit of money each day. And then one day I wasn't at school and the other two were caught. And then they grasped me up and I swore on a stack of bubbles. Like, Mr. Angel was the headmaster. I said, I didn't do this. I couldn't do it. I just come out of an orphanage. I believe in Jesus Christ, you know, and my God. And of course they swallowed it and they punished the two other boys and they didn't punish me. Um, and the, But they grasped me up. I've never grasped anybody up, never, ever. So I then, when I saw them, beat them up, gave them a severe kicking, and then I was hauled before the because this happened in the playground. I was then hauled before the te- the headmaster and beaten myself, and then um, uh, it all went funny again. And then I reconnected with one of the boys, the one who said he didn't say grasp me up. And then we used to go shoplifting down a place called North End Road in Fulham, where we were living. And um, and then one day he tried to steal a, a football by putting it up his pullover, and I was outside, and he got nicked. And then he said, "Oh, he's in it with me." So he grasped me up again. So that was just the you know it, the devil makes work for idle hands. And if if I couldn't be socially integrated into the ordinary lives of the working class families around me, then I would obviously fall in with the ne'er-do-wells. And is that why you understand gangs now? That, you, that yeah. There is a sense still that if you can't fit in, if you're the sort of unfairness of it all, really, and if you're not accepted, that it's much easier to become part of a gang. Yeah, yeah. Gangs are, they make up for the gaps left by family. And families, obviously, um, are no longer families in the old way. They're not, you know, like when we lived in Notting Hill, we... We were an immediate family and then an extended family and then there were the old ladies who looked after you uh, who were all called Aunt Doris or Auntie Eileen or Auntie Mary but you weren't related to them. And, and obviously, if you, uh, gangs, if you, if you don't belong and you don't have any dignity, because dignity is important whatever age you are, you've got to feel that you're all right, you join a gang. And I was in a number of gangs, and some of them were horrible, and some of them were not very good at being horrible. So it depended on how good they were. <laughs> I was in a particular gang in the World's End Chelsea, where we just spent all the time beating each other up. And I don't know why. I just, you know, you, what, you said that, did you? Boom! <laughs> I didn't say that, boom! <laughs> and there was this, uh, you know, and I think in a way it's like you you become almost impervious to violence and you become impervious to uh, to pain. <laughs> was there any sense then that prison almost was a refuge? At least you were safe there. Well, I was only in boys' prisons. Uh, I did a bit of other things, but they they were short, you know, they were kind of a couple of months here and there, but, you know, but the... The boys' prisons were not a place of safety or anything because what you had was you had largely quite madly, you know, they were motivated to hurt people on the basis that if you hurt the the criminal classes, then they won't come back for more, which didn't quite work out because, uh, you know, there was 80%, I was in a detention centre uh, and I was in a remand home and 
and I was in a boys' prison, and virtually every place went again and again. You would see the same people in another institution. So it didn't work. Terrorising the underclass, or whatever they call them, just didn't work. first time that you slept rough I slept rough when when I was uh, when I was about 11 when I ran away from home and I slept in the local park for about two days and that was largely because I just couldn't stand school and I couldn't stand my parents and I'd just been to court again for truancy and they were going to take me away um, you know and because they it was obvious that my mother wasn't going to insist I went to school um, so I, I slept for rough for two days and... Uh, what did it feel like? Uh, safe. <laughs> it felt really safe. I liked it. I made a little bower quiet for us, full, full of sweet dreams. Sorry, that's a, a crap poem from Keats, I think. Uh, no, I made a little place. I was very good at making little places. Um, little nests. I mean, that's why we're called bird, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> But, uh, and then I went to see my probation officer because I was on probation from the age of 10 to 11, uh, till 15. And he said, look, you know, you've got to go home. And he took me for lunch. He took, I mean, took me for, for a meal. And he didn't push me. And he said, look, I'm, you stay in the office and I'll go and get your mum, which he did. And he said, and I'll tell her not to beat you up. And I'll tell her that your father, because then you'll run away again. So when I met them, they were like, and they'd been looking for me for two days. They couldn't find me, and I was in the local park behind the tennis shop. Hmm. So, and then periodically I'd run away when I, when I was 12, 13, 14, and always slept rough. I slept rough in the New Forest when I was 14. I loved it. I absolutely loved uh, not being at home and not being in school and not being anywhere where anybody could get at me. Was it ever dangerous, though? There must have been times... It was very dangerous. I mean, there were an enormous amount of paedophiles. Uh, You couldn't move for them. Uh, And that put me off men. And I've always had a kind of weird relationship with men because I tend to become quite aggressive with men. Women, it's different because I saw my mother beaten, so I could never hit a woman. So it made me really weird. Uh, I've got into so many fights just because I took umbrage with a guy. And I think in a way, it's this kind of perverted world. I mean, it was, I mean, the 50s were, and where we lived was just swamped with paedophiles. And then there were teachers who weren't, you know, you thought, what, what's he doing rubbing my rear for and or a, a youth club where they were. so it was it was a very very bad time to be poor and in the working classes because you were surrounded by people who obviously gravitated to you to that area to to kind of fiddle with you i was fortunate in that no one ever got very far because i would get very aggressive and throw milk bottles at them and all that but there were other people who you could see were were troubled by it and we did used to discuss it a lot. We were terrified uh, with these perverted men. And even on the streets, did you have gangs then as well when you were sleeping rough? You met people, and very, very quickly, in a day, you'd feel you'd known them forever. So there's a sense of camaraderie. Yeah, it was. Um, yeah, it was a sense of belonging. We would go. 
stealing, uh, largely. Uh, you couldn't really beg then, because the police, if they got you, they'd nick you and you'd be put inside. And I couldn't get nicked, because I was... I'd already jumped bail for some misdemeanours. As I said, you, you when you're on the streets, you do get into a lot of trouble. So how did you get off the streets? Well, I was nicked so many times, and then uh, I eventually uh, was put into a reformatory, and then I came out of the reformatory, and I'd been totally transformed. I became a very kind of posh kit in the sense that I'd become a reader and then I started to draw and paint uh, and by the time I left I had this enormous portfolio of paintings and drawings. But it must also help, your experiences must help you understand why people end up rough sleeping, how it feels, give you a real empathy, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I do feel that there is a real problem in life um, that... Most people who are making decisions about the poorest amongst us have absolutely no idea what's going on. And they then sometimes recruit people who've had the experience. And that can be as deadly as ignorance. I remember when we started The Big Issue, we recruited a lot of homeless people to run the organisation because I was a bit utopian. I thought, well, you know, I thought I was tough enough to control everybody, but there were so many devious people that we, that there were people stealing from us. There were people, there was somebody formed a, um, um, a, um, a rent, a rent boy and a rent girl, you know, there was prostitution and all that. There was drugs being sold and so, so we had to really, we, in the end, we had to stop bringing so many homeless people into the organisation. And it was then, I mean, that was nearly 30 years ago, I thought, hang on, even I... Because I always thought what you could do is just give them a, a backhander and say, don't do that again. So I worked with a lot of... I recruited a lot of very large Scottish people mm. who'd been in the army to be my kind of police force, to discipline the people, because there was a terrible problem with them violence and you know people beating up our staff so I had to recruit these people but even then they might have a drink and then turn against you so there was so it was a sharp learning curve. So how do you ever break that loop that, that sense that once someone becomes homeless it's very difficult for them to well, regularise their well, life? Well that is anyway. one of the that is one of the problems that we're facing now if we're going to have mass homelessness and the response is uh, which, which I really worry about. The response is let people go to court, let them be evicted, and then they present themselves as homeless to the local authority and then they will be given temporary accommodation. That is the beginning of the end, because even temporary accommodation... You say to a child who's lived at home with mum and dad and they've been in work and they're at a college or not school or whatever doing their doing their levels and all sorts of stuff like that. You take from them the home and you will depress them, you will destroy their sense of well-being and you will make them feel that they're internal refugees. What are you going to do to mum and dad? So this is why the ride-out recession um, um, alliance is so important. 
because it's saying let's keep people in their homes let's pay them to stay in their homes pay their mortgages you know pay the the um, interest only or keep people in their rent because if they fall into homelessness you will have a devastation that will run through generation after generation describe yourself as middle class do you think oh yeah I, I got out of the working class as soon as I could and that, that's very interesting because I was interviewed on a radio pro on a TV program there was a the, there was a guy who was an Irish um, psychologist who used to interview the well-known you know 20 years ago and he was an Irish guy and he said to me he asked me all about you know who I was and all that and then uh, he, um, <laughs> then there was a TV break, and then he afterwards he said, oh, but John, he said, you're not working class anymore, you're middle class, aren't you? You're middle class. And there are so many people, especially middle class people, who, who want to pretend that they're, because their great-grandfather was a, a minor. Oh, I'm, I'm working class, really. And, you know, a lot of pop stars, you know, oh, yeah, I'm working class, mm. you know. Uh, and... Uh, um, that, this this is it's interesting because it's that class obsession. So what marked the transition for you? I when I started to read and write, and I started to paint and draw, and when I went on home leave from my reformatory, I did not go down the pub or the club or whatever, but went to the National Gallery. Mm. I knew I was posh, mm. and I knew well middle class. I knew that I wasn't like my brothers. And I couldn't, I, you know, I would paint and draw in the kitchen and say, get out, you know, because uh, that was the only space. Uh, I knew that I was, I was going somewhere and I was leaving my family behind and I was really glad that I was getting out because I didn't like the values of the people around me. They were racist, they were anti-Semitic, they were uh, homophobic. Uh, you know, I'd, I'd known a load of homosexuals in you know um in homelessness and and in the prison system and they were no threat to me so i knew homosexuality wasn't some evil whatever i knew that jews weren't the cause of all of our problems or black people weren't the cause of our all our problems so i'd learned all of this stuff and i was leaving behind a, a kind of morass of of, of self-harm which I think is what happens in poverty. And you applied to be in the House of Lords, didn't you? Is that because you felt that you'd find a home there or you felt part of the establishment or you just wanted to change things? Well, I very graphically describe my entry into the House of Lords in a kind of way where I pick up a, a switchblade knife and I go up to the interviewer and I say, an imaginary slip, and I go, I went into the House of Lords to slit the throat of poverty. Because the, the whole system, the government system, the charity system, it all is about bringing relief. It is not about stepping back and saying, we've got a lot of poverty, so what are we going to do about it? There is just too many indulgences into making people as comfortable for the day, the week, the month or the year. But there's very, very little commitment to transforming people out of poverty 
When 70% of all the activity of both houses and all the activity of local authorities is in and around the damage, the collateral damage created by poverty, then you have... I mean, why Boris Johnson or whoever was in before or whoever's going to be in next, if they ever stopped and said, hang on, this is an unsustainable world. We're spending so much money on keeping people poor. We're not getting them out of poverty. Why is social security given to young people to go to university in the form of a, of a loan? It comes from the same source. Why do we give people a, a social security as a loan or a grant, depending? Uh, why, is, why is that transformational? And yet social security is not transformational. It's hand-holding. It's saying, oh, go over there and live for the rest of your life or for as long as we, until we change our minds in dependency. Why is there no, why is there no, why is social security not social opportunity? Why is it that we, um, we don't support children and their families at the particular point of the crisis? So therefore they fall into crime or fall into long-term drug use or whatever, and we then have to spend on them till the last moment of their lives. And I can introduce you to people who grew up with me uh, well, most of them are dead now, but they would have cost the state, the taxpayer, tenfold of, rather than repairing the damage. In the, why is there no revolt, revulsion against our misuse of the taxpayer's money? What was it like when you first arrived in the laws? Because you'd actually washed dishes in Parliament. Did you um, feel at home there? I never really felt home at home anywhere. And I think a lot of homeless people or ex-homeless people don't, you know, you don't quite fit in. I always felt that uh, I was kind of, I, I wasn't really taken seriously. I mean, in the homeless world, I was at loggerheads with virtually every other charity because they were saying, you know, you, you, you've got to help people. And I said, well, you, the best help you can give them is self-help. I said, oh, no, that's a Tory thing. That's, you know, kind of Samuel Smiles. That's kind of 18th century. That's Margaret Thatcher. I said, well, I don't care where it comes from. All I want to know is that when I give somebody an opportunity for self-help, I can see them grow out of poverty. So I went into the House of Lords. You see, I was sick of people saying, and I have had a lot of it. I mean, it's good that I'm a modest, mild-mannered, you know, not impressionable guy, because I'd have people say... John Bird, you, you know, you, you, you know, you're the, you're the, Mother Teresa of Fulham Broadway, mm. or something like. That. Oh yeah, you know, and you, almost kind of. Ah, I'm going to faint at your feet, and, uh, and you know, you really know how to think, think outside the box, and I'd hear all this, and I'd go, yeah, 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 and then, I realised, of course, one of the problems. Everybody loves somebody who thinks outside the box, and the reason for that. It's because the box isn't working. So what you've got to do is crawl into the box and make the box work. So I made the decision in 2014, I was going to crawl into that box. I was going to get in there 
whatever brown nosy way I had to do it. Fortunately, I didn't have to brown nose too much because I just went to a couple of interviews and filled in a form and passed it along to them. And they were perplexed and fascinated that there was this geezer who had who, who had to admit, you know, probably 15 wrongdoings, mm. you know, 15 court cases and all sorts of stuff like that and being arrested for being drunk and disorderly and, you know, fighting in public and all that stuff. And I told them all that. So, and they were kind of... But there were enough of them in the who could see that I could make a contribution. In your maiden speech, you said that you got into the Lords by lying, cheating and stealing. Do you think that really, in a way, helped you, the tragedies and the traumas you suffered as a child, in a sense, by making you tougher and more resilient? I don't think I'm as tough as some people think I am. I'm just very good at looking tough. The point I was trying to make about I, I got into the House of Lords by lying, cheating and stealing, I was making a very specific point which probably got lost in my delivery, and that is that my brothers didn't lie, cheat and steal. They just went on. So they went to their crummy secondary modern schools like I did, and then they left their crummy net secondary modern schools and then got jobs in factories or on building sites. They never got any education. They never got any advantages. And at the same time, I was banged up and they were spending more money on me, two times what they were spending on me than if I had gone to Eton. It would have been cheaper to put me in Eton. And they were doing things like they were teaching me how to work. They were teaching me how to read and write. They were teaching me trades like printing, like a bit of bricklaying and all sorts of, even scaffolding. I wouldn't get on any scaffolding that I'd built, but, uh, and all sorts of things. But they were also uh, encouraging you to, in the evenings, to, to learn things like evening classes. They also put us through these mock exams, you know, like O-levels. Um, I mean, my brothers never got any of that. They never got, you know, they worked all hard all day and then they drank at night and they went and saw their girlfriends and made them pregnant, you know, and that was it. But on the other hand, lots of people who end up in prison don't manage to turn their lives around or end up in the House of Lords. What was it, do you think, that meant you could? Was it character or is it just luck? I, I think I had a really great teacher in my mother because my mother taught me to be a beggar. Uh, I mean beg, I mean to, to tell a good story. I know, I, when I was a beggar, I had the most, you know, grand eloquent descriptions of how I'd fallen to be a beggar. And people were in, oh, and he's got, he's got quite a wild, wide vocabulary, because I'm always out picking up words, you know, whether it's vitriol or vituperation. <laughs> Uh, uh, you know, I'm a bit of a jackdaw over that one. A magpie, sorry. So looking back to yourself at five when you were made homeless, what do you wish you'd known then that you know now? I think I wish I'd known that if I went down Shepherd's Bush Market, there were a lot more wooden boxes. <laughs> <laughs> What, what advice would you give to yourself? Uh, the bit, best advice I would give anybody who's a child is to remember your parents. 
and uh, don't take them for advantage. I mean, my mother left when I was 27, and it was terrible, uh, absolutely terrible. Uh, my dad left when I was 37, and I didn't even miss him because he didn't mean the same to me. And I think there's a lot of, there's a real, I mean, I meet so many children now who you'd think that their parents were, were minions and they were members of the aristocracy. You know, I'm not joking, and my kids, I have to keep saying to my children, I'm sorry, I've not born, I wasn't born to serve you. <laughs> Just because you're members of the upper middle classes and you're aristocrats, oh, shut up, Dad. <laughs> and I think there's that. I think the trivialisation of human life, which is expressed in terms of consumerism, you know, there's two things in life. One is appetites and the other is thinking. And I think the thinking has been damaged by our emphasis on the other side of human existence, which is we emphasize appetites, whether they're sexual, whether they're social, whether they're listening, whether they're music. Why is it that all the big companies in the world, now where all the big money is, is in entertainment, in distraction? Where, where, where's the money going into educating people in everyday philosophy? or in, in the great religions that have helped us to get where we are and also to hinder where we are. Uh, where are the great efforts to understand history and who we are? And, and where, where is anybody explaining the Big Bang theory, where we all come from? You know, we're matter. Do you ever worry that your own children have it too easy almost, that their, their upbringing is so different to yours? Uh, well... That is, I've got, I have five children and I, I'm, I think I'm blessed with the fact that every one of them knows that I am still, you know, I'm still a, a in process. <laughs> so they can see that, you know, it's not, I'm not, you know, I'm not there on a pedestal. So they know, they all know and they all know that I still live the crisis, you know. So there's that element, which, and I think that enriches them. Every one of them are interested in, in the well-being of others because I think we're only here for one thing, and that's to help someone else. I, and by that I mean by helping somebody else, you help yourself. Lord Bird, thank you very much. That was fascinating. Thank you very much. I didn't realise I was such a lovely, charming person. <laughs> you just reminded me again. <laughs> Imperfect was presented by me, Rachel Sylvester. And me, Alice Thompson. It was produced by Lucy Ditchmont. The executive producer was Matt Hall. It was a Wireless Studios production. You can hear Past Imperfect on Times Radio and download the podcast from Apple Podcasts, Acast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 